Uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew uh, 22. Matthew 22. I'd like to begin our time by reading an account from Jesus' life, which Matthew relates to us in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. So I know we just finished Matthew last week, um, but I do want to start by reading this passage together. Matthew says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There are some passages of Scripture that stick out. Now don't get me wrong, I understand all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, but all the same, I think we all have specific passages that grip us more than others. For me, Matthew 22, 34-40 is one of those passages. And the reason is because in this passage, Jesus summarizes all the commands in the Law and the Prophets. I tell you, the first time I realized that, it was a revelation to me. See, I became a believer suddenly. Some people can look back on their life, they're not entirely sure when they were regenerated. That wasn't the case for me. It was, it was an instant when I believed. One moment I was living in unrepentant rebellion against God, and then the next I wasn't. My life flipped drastically. The gospel that I already knew for a long time, I finally applied. And all at once, the thing I wanted more than anything else was to know God and to be pleasing to Him. Before I knew it, I was at church. Every time the door was open, when I was home, I would read books and I would listen to sermons, just trying to learn what it meant to live like a Christian, just trying to understand practically what that looked like. As I wrestled with that question, I would listen to sermons that, that gave these lists these lists explaining what righteousness was and what a person had to do to be righteous. And I'd bring my notebook with me to church and I'd dutifully scribble down all these lists, just list after list, about what I had to do to be holy. It wasn't long before I started to feel this growing sense of despair. And that wasn't just because of my inability right, to do all these lists. See, I would write these lists down, these, these lists describing what holiness is and how to be holy, and then I, I tell myself, you know, I've got to make sure I don't forget this. I want to apply these principles I just learned in my life. And then before I ever had the opportunity to, to even look at these lists again, to review them, another sermon would roll around with more lists. And very, very quickly, I realized I'm, I'm never going to keep up. Right? This can't, this isn't going to work. I can't remember all these lists. There's got to be something simpler than this. Surely this isn't the way that God intended to make us holy through the rigorous memorization of an endless set of lists. Nine techniques for killing the flesh. Eight means for spiritual growth. Seven principles for redeeming the time. It all seemed a, a bit too complicated. When I looked at Jesus, I didn't see him teaching the disciples with an endless set of lists. So I started to ask myself, what, what are the core principles of the Christian life? Is there a set of essential foundational concepts that can be used as a grid or a framework to interpret the, the rest? And if so, what are they? I mean, if I'm even supposed to know what I'm supposed to do, is there some type of paradigm that will tell me that? I wanted something simple, something I could use as a reference point for these seemingly disconnected principles. That way, even if I forget all the principles that were coming in, I still had a starting point to work with to guide me in my walk with Christ. Well, it was as I was looking for that reference point that I came across Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And I realized, I mean, that's it. That's the paradigm I've been looking for. In this passage, Jesus says all of God's commandments can be summarized in just two points. Love God and love other people. That's an incredibly helpful principle because not only does it serve to simplify and explain God's commands, but it even helps to explain why I might struggle to fulfill those commands. What are God's commands driving at? Well, first and foremost, they're intended to express love to God. They're an expression of worship. 
right? That's what God wants from me. He desires that I worship. And then second, He wants me to love others, except that really isn't a second command. It's actually just an extension of the first. Jesus says the second command is like the first, and the Scripture explains how that works by telling us that man is made in the image of God. So express, expressing love toward your fellow man, that's an extension of your worship. It's just, it's just another way to say I love you to God. This makes things very simple. You know, what's God telling me to do when He gives all these commands about how to treat other people? It's simple. He's telling me to love them. He wants me to do good to others. And why does He want me to do that? Well, because what He wants from me is worship. And that's an expression of worship. That provides a framework, not only in which to interpret God's existing commands, but also in which to interpret what God wants us to do in those situations, even when there are no explicit commands. That's really, really helpful. Well, again, what does God want me to do? He wants me to worship. He wants me to love in all circumstances. And if I need a primer to teach me what that looks like, then I look to the commands given to me in Scripture. And if I have trouble performing those commands, well, this passage explains the reason for that too. After all, if all of God's commands are an expression of worship, then it means that if I know what those commands are and I still don't do them, then the reason is because I am not worshiping. I do not love God. It pushes all my obedience back into my heart, and it shows me that all my disobedience is ultimately rooted back in the things I love, the things I desire. It shows me that my main problem is an idol problem. I'm hoping for joy and comfort and security in things other than God. I take delight in things other than God, and that is why I disobey. My very heart is corrupted by the power of sin. What the Scripture asks of us and what we are to do as Christians suddenly makes a lot of sense in light of that command. For example, why do Christians spend so much time learning? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we spend so much time learning? We get together, we listen to sermons, we have Bible studies, you know, we'll meet at the coffee shop or at someone's house and we discuss Scripture all the time. Why is that? And this command explains that. The problem with sin is our heart. It's what we love. And so if we're going to be transformed, then it's going to be through the renewing of our mind. We have to put off old corrupt thoughts about God and put on what the Scripture says about Him. And why, when we discuss the Scripture together, do we keep going back to the Gospel over and over again? Isn't that just something we believe in when we're saved? Do we really need to keep hearing it? Again, this command explains that. Again, the problem with our sin is our heart. It's what we love. This means that if we're ever going to be obedient, then we must be trained to see God as beautiful and lovely and desirable. And what concept is going to do that more than the message proclaimed by the gospel? What message is going to draw us to God in affection more than the idea that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for our sins? That's disarming, isn't it? To know that God loved us like that? Loves us like that? That tells us that God's commands are good, that they must be good. If He so loves us, and, and so it brings us to the point of repentance and faith. And I, and I could keep going, but I think you see my point. This command really simplifies for us in so many ways how we as Christians are supposed to live. And it was for this reason that five years ago, when I was trying to lay out a framework explaining the life and activity of the church, which was intended to serve as a template for the future of our young church plant, I went back to these two core principles. Not many of you were here for that initial series on the church, but if you were to go and look it up online, what you'd find is that I started by asking first, what is the church and what is the purpose of the church? Those are essential questions for any church plant to consider, I think, if they're going to have any idea of why they exist and what they are to do now that they exist. And I explained in those questions that the church is the assembly of the redeemed. It is the group of people who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It has both local and universal expressions. It is at once both visible and invisible. But in whichever way you're talking about it, the church is made up of those individuals who have been joined to Christ by virtue of faith in the gospel. And its purpose is to express praise to God as a result of this great and glorious redemption. 
That's important. Jesus did, doesn't die on the cross simply so that some sinners don't go to hell. No, He dies on the cross so that being redeemed, they might express praise and worship to God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, he says, We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As he says again in Titus 2.14, he says that Christ, quote, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is an important distinction in Christianity. You know, we do not believe that we are saved by good works, but we do believe that we are saved for good works. We are not sanctified for our justification. We are justified, rather, for our sanctification. Salvation is free, but the outcome is supposed to be lives that are transformed for the glory of God. So what does that mean? How is the church supposed to live if that's the case? What are we supposed to do? Well, I broke it down into two parts. First, I said it means that we love God. And then second, it means that we love others. If the purpose of the church is worship, then this in its simplest form describes what the church is to do. It is to love God and love people. Well, as I mentioned last week, we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of our church, and I think this is a good opportunity for us to pause and give ourselves a progress report by asking, you know, five years later, how are we doing at this? If we're to rate ourselves, which part of this equation do we still need to work on the most? As I ask myself that question, I'm not so sure it's the first half. Now, don't get me wrong, I understand that to some degree it's always going to be a first-half problem, right? Because all success in the second half of the equation is derived from what's going on in the first half. Again, love for others is an expression of one's love for God. So if a person doesn't love others, that is always going to be due to a deficiency in their love for God. But what I mean is that I think for the most part, we're already aware as a body of our worship deficiency. And for the most part, I gather that we as a body are already actively trying to grow in that area. I think that, that much is evident, for instance, by the body's concern for truth and in its constant exertions to grow in the truth, which is to be commended. But if I had to pick, then I'd say the one thing that we're perhaps not as focused on is our deficiency in our love for others. And to be clear, I'm not saying that's something that we're not focused on, as if we just don't care about it. I'm just saying if I had to pick which of these two concepts needs the most attention, I think it's probably the second part, love for others. That's probably the area that we can improve in the most. And so with that in mind, I'd like to take the next few weeks to revisit the messages I gave then, five years ago, about love for others. And I'd like us to consider once again the role love for others plays in the life of the church. I think this will not only serve to motivate us to excel in our love for others as we begin the next five years of the church, but it will also help explain many of the changes we're trying to implement lately at Cornerstone. The home fellowship groups, for instance, and the book that they'll be studying this year, Love or Die, that's all based on this idea that we need to excel in our love for others. Even the parenting classes, I think you'll see today, that's tied to this same concept. So if you're on the fence about whether to participate in some of these new activities, I hope that through this series I can motivate you to get off the fence and get involved and grow with us as we continually ask ourselves throughout this year, how can we grow in our love? Now just as a heads up, um, these verses are not going to be, uh, or these, these uh, uh, messages are not going to be verse by verse. Uh, they are kind of more topically arranged. Uh, I think you'll see I'm still explaining the scripture as we go. I don't think I said they're just not expositional entirely. But um, either way, I'd encourage you to maybe think of these next few weeks more like a Sunday school class perhaps than a sermon. Um, and in these first three messages, all I want to do is show you how love for others is an expression of God in three different aspects of the Christian's life. In other words, we're called to love different kinds of people. And I think that the scripture reveals is that each of these expressions, or each of these relationships, uh, express love for God differently. 
I want to show you how such love glorifies God, hopefully as a motivation to encourage you to grow in these expressions of love. So you can kind of think of these three, me- three, these three messages like an expansion of Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Jesus says love for others is an expression of love for God. As believers, we love God and we want to demonstrate our love. Well, how does love in these different types of relationships uniquely express love for God? How are they all a unique expression of worship? That's what I want to unpack for you in the next several weeks. And the first type of relationship is family. Family. Love for family is one unique expression of love for God. And if Cornerstone is to be successful in accomplishing its purpose in worshiping God, then we must be intentional about growing in love for our families. So why is that? Why? Is love for one's family such a unique and even critical expression of love for God? That's what I want to examine with you this morning. I want to share with you just two reasons why love for family is an expression of love for God. And the first reason is this. Number one, because family serves as a unique vehicle for expressing the character of God. Family serves as a unique vehicle for expressing the character of God. I don't think we often think about this. I tend to think only uh, we we, th- we tend to think only about the benefits that we receive from family very often, the the joy and love that we experience in the context of our family. We don't think very often about what it reflects about God. However, family is actually very much a theologically driven concept. Family is an institution created by God specifically for the purpose of representing his character. Well, how does this work? How does family reflect the glory of God? Please turn to Genesis 1, 26. In Genesis 1, 26, we discover that man is made in the image of God. Have you ever wondered how that works? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Again, have you wondered about that? That's a question that's been widely debated over the years, and even to this day, there are a variety of opinions on that subject. This isn't a crystal clear issue in Scripture. There's probably room for disagreement, but let me explain for you as briefly as possible what I think the Scripture shows us about the image of God and how this understanding of the image of God affects our understanding of the importance of family. As we look at Genesis 1 through 3, it would appear that the image of God is defined perhaps by at least two qualities. The first, and it would appear the chief quality, is that of dominion or rule. Look again, Genesis 1, 26-28, and observe the purpose for which God creates man when he creates him in his image. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God creates man in his image but for a particular purpose which is to exert dominion over the earth. Verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image and let him rule. In verse 27, God creates man. Note, both male and female in his image. And then in verse 28, he says, Now rule. Both times he mentions the image of God, and both times he associates that function with the ruling of the earth. By the way, note how man is to exert this dominion. Genesis 1.28 says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and exert dominion over other life. God is is made, a man is made in the image of God, meaning that he was created to exert dominion over the earth, and part of the way that he will do this is by being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth. In other words, there's a reason why in verse 26 it's pointed out that both male and female were created in the image of God, and the reason is because this is a task that they can ultimately only fulfill together. At face value, this may not seem overly convincing. After all, it would seem at least possible, right, that dominion merely describes man's uh, purpose or role in the world, his function, and that God made man in his own image in order to fulfill that function. In other words, uh, dominion could be said to be just not 
to be uh, man's purpose without in any way reflecting man's nature as the image of God. However, what's fascinating is that when this concept of image comes up in other portions of the scripture, it is again associated with the concept of dominion. For example, when you go to Genesis 9, turn over to Genesis 9, where God institutes the death penalty for murder. Again, because man is made in the image of God. He he delivers that command within the context of the be fruitful and multiply mandate. Look, Genesis 9, 1-7. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He goes on to say, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, as I gave you the green plants. I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. And then he says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And again, note again, verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. So as God is discussing this command for Noah and his descendants to subdue the earth, to exert dominion, he's also discussing the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God with this death penalty for murder. In the New Testament as well, Jesus is described Jesus is described as himself being the image of God. And the trait that is consistently associated with that concept is that of rule and authority and dominion. Colossians 1, 15-20 says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross." Hebrews 1, 1-4, likewise says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So again, you see this idea of dominion, rule, authority, brought up once again, even when it's Jesus being spoken of as the very image of God. This is what it would seem the image of God means. It means that man is in a unique position of authority over the earth. By definition, one of the unique characteristics of God, if not the unique characteristic, is that God rules. By the very definition of being God, God rules. He is the only eternal person, item, thing in the entire universe. He alone is uncreated. Everyone else and everything is created by God. Which means that all things are dependent upon God. They exist because God wills them to exist. We see this at the very beginning of Genesis 1. God speaks and the universe appears. Well, because all things are dependent on Him, it means He rules all things. Nothing else is like Him in this sense. But after creating all the creatures of the earth, as God goes to make the last creature, He says, let's make man different. Let's make him in our image. Or perhaps it's, it's even more literally translated as our image. This man is created physically similar to every other creature on the planet, right? He's very much like other creatures in this respect. But when God goes to make man different, he sets man in authority over the other creatures. This is what it would appear to be what it would appear to mean to be made in the image of God. 
Now, this understanding of, of the image of God obviously carries with it many applications. However, the issue at hand is the importance of family. And what I want to point out for the time being is the simple fact that man, mankind cannot fulfill this purpose apart from family. Mankind is created to rule over the earth, and one of the ways that he is to do this is by multiplying and, and filling the earth. That is something that takes place within the context of a family. In other words, family is the foundational means through which we are to glorify God. Even if you're not convinced that the image of God is expressed through dominion, you can't disagree with this idea from Scripture. If nothing else, the command to fulfill and subdue the earth is the first and most basic command given to all mankind. As a race, we cannot worship God through our obedience without obeying this command. And that comes within the context of family. The second quality that would appear, and this is somewhat more debatable, I'll say this up front, but the second quality that would appear to define the image of God is, for lack of a better term, Trinitarian love. God exists in Trinity, and if you're unfamiliar with the concept of Trinity, what it, what it means most simply is that God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is fully, completely God, and yet there is only one God. Again, God exists in three distinct persons. The Son is not the same person as the Father. The Father is not the same person as the Son. Neither are they the same as the Spirit and vice versa. They are, all, they are as distinct in personhood as you are for me, and yet there is only one God. And each are fully and completely God. Try to get your mind around that. You, can, you can't do it. It is impossible to try to wrap your mind around that. The quality, this quality of God is, is part of the holiness of God. There is absolutely nothing like it in the creation. Nothing fully illustrates this idea of simultaneous distinction and unity. Theologians have been wrestling with this concept for 2,000 years, and there's simply nothing that compares to God in this area. It's almost impossible even to describe. In fact, I tend to think I probably commit one form of heresy or another every time I try to describe it. It's just un so unlike anything that we know. But do you know what I think probably comes the closest in all the creation to capturing this idea? It's the family. You see, within the Trinity, the distinct persons of the Trinity all play different roles. The Son submits to the will of the Father. The, Father, the Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. The Father expresses His love to both the Father, the, to the Son and the Spirit. Though they are completely equal in essence and worth, all three are, are fully and completely God. They function differently, in which they express mutual love and, and affection differently. They do so without any strife amongst themselves. They're completely and utterly unified. They exist as one God, such that you can legitimately refer to God, not as they, but as Him. The family, I think we can probably see here in, this, in Genesis 1, is probably the closest thing that resembles this in all the creation. In fact, while you're in Genesis, watch this. Go back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 27... Moses describes the creation of male and female like this. He says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's notable about that is that if you pay attention, the first two statements are saying the exactly, exactly the same thing, just an in inverted order. That's a Hebrew poetic device known as parallelism. They rhyme ideas in ancient Hebrew, not words. Well, what's interesting is that in this third statement, something changes. Can you catch what it is? It's the phrase image of God. And in its place are the words male and female. Now, maybe all this verse is saying is that male and female are made in the image of God. I think that's certainly true. One is, one is not more like God than the other, right? In Genesis 9, the death penalty, that exists whether someone kills a male or a female, right? Because we're all individually created in the image of God. Maybe that's all this is saying is that, that in terms of essence and worth, male and female are both created in God's image. But then turn to Genesis 2. It's interesting. Moses explains that, Ad, that Adam is made before Eve, if you look in Genesis 2. And in the process, Moses begins to demonstrate that Adam is created to serve as the authority in his relationship with Eve. He gives to Adam alone the command not to eat from the tree of good and evil. And he states the reason why He's making Eve is to be a helpmeet to Adam. He allows Adam to even name the animals without Eve. He creates Eve from Adam, and then he allows Adam to name Eve. Those are all things that are actually symbols of authority here. 
Thus, even though it's fair to say that Adam and Eve are, are both equal in essence, in Genesis 2, he then points out that Adam is in authority over Eve. They are equal in essence or worth, but distinct in office or role. Then finally, look what happens in Genesis 2, 23. It says, Then man said, after the creation of Eve, it says, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Through this first act of marriage, they become one flesh. They become a unit. In other words, through this, his two creation accounts, Moses manages to explain that when God created male and female, he made them equal in worth or essence, distinct in function or role, but completely unified. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but that certainly looks awfully Trinitarian. In fact, I think it's pretty interesting that God doesn't tend to refer to himself in the first person plural, we, very often, because there's only one God. And yet he says in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That seems like he's going out of his way to make a point. And that point is that, in this, is, is that this diversity within authority to, uh, structure that he's placing over the earth, it's that structure that uniquely represents him. And it's not just Genesis 1 to 2 that seem to make this connection. This thought that the family imperfectly but uniquely represents the Trinity is continued in the rest of Scripture as well. On one hand, God refers to his relationship with his people. He, he refers to himself not as a king very often, but he describes himself as a husband to the people of Israel. In the same way, when, when Christ is described, he's described as a husband of the church in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. And perhaps most clearly of all, we should notice that when Jesus sought to explain his relationship in the Godhead, he referred to himself as the Son and to the first member of the Trinity as the Father. Family is a unique representation of the intra-Trinitarian love of God on earth. It would appear that each of us represents the character of God individually. We know this from God's sentence for murderers in Genesis 9. If you kill a single individual, you've attacked the image of God. And yet it also appears that we, we represent the, God, the character of God corporately as well, and most especially as a family. Just like Jesus himself is the image of God, fully and completely God, such that he can say, right, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet God is also fully and completely exists in Trinity. So also a single person represents the image of God, and yet... Man and woman joined together in marriage, right? Family represents the image of God as well. Thus it would seem that while the image of God in man is perhaps summed up in the concept of dominion or rule, it's not just any kind of rule that's being referenced. It's a rule that represents the character of God. It's a rule in plurality in which distinct yet complementary parts are inseparably joined together in steadfast, unbreakable love, and then express that love together as they exert dominion with the same type of humble, deferential love that's found in God. I think when you understand the family in this theological light, then it suddenly becomes incredibly clear why the Bible talks about many of the issues related to this topic in the way that it does. For instance, it shows us why God intends marriage to be an unbreakable commitment between a man and a woman. There's a reason why God condemns divorce. And it's related to the character of God that we're to display to one another. The fact that we are to display the character of God in our love for one another means that when we become one flesh, we should be no more capable of separating from one another than the Son is capable of separating from the Father. We should no more desire to set our affections on another person than Jesus would desire to worship Satan rather than the Father. A biblical understanding of family also shows us why God condemns the various types of sexual sins that men and women commit. After all, it shows us that sexuality, human sexuality, is not the amoral issue that society tries to tell us that it is. It is actually incredibly theological. 
It is intimately connected to the very character of God himself. Adultery and fornication create problems. For many of the reasons I just described, it does not demonstrate the faithful love that's found in God. Homosexuality, as well as other types of sexual sins, also goes against many of the principles I just described regarding the image of God in us. There's a reason why God specifically calls out this behavior as sin on several different occasions. Do you see, once again, God's commands show us not only how to love others, but how to love God. And once we have a clear understanding of the theology behind the family, it becomes apparent how this works. Our love for family, our commitment to express this relationship according to God's designs is a reflection not just of our love for others, but of our love for God. This is the first reason why we must love our family if we love God, because family serves as a unique vehicle for expressing the character of God. Now let's look briefly at the second reason. Number two, the second reason why love for one's family is an expression of love for God is because family serves as God's primary vehicle for transmitting truth from one generation to the next. Let me say that one more time. Family serves as God's primary vehicle for transmitting truth from one generation to the next. This idea is fairly straightforward, so we'll try to go through this quickly. Please uh, turn to Deuteronomy 6. We did that for our scripture reading this morning. Let's look there once again. When Jesus gives the first and great commandment of the law, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which says this. He's, it's Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What shouldn't be missed is the full context of this verse, which reads, starting in verse 4, going through verse 9, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As God gives this instruction to Israel, there is one God, Israel, right? That's what he's telling them. There's one God, and you're to love Him with all your heart. You're to be completely devoted to Him. As He gives that command, He also gives this other instruction, which is pass these truths down to your children. Remember these things and teach them. If you were to scan the Old Testament, you would, quickly you would quickly find that this is a consistent theme. Israel was to pass knowledge of God down from one generation to another. And this was to be achieved specifically through the family. For example, this was part of the design of the festivals of Israel, such as Passover. Now, the Passover was an annual celebration that not only commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt, but it was also a means of systematically teaching the children of Israel about Yahweh. It was a festival that served to train the next generation of worshipers through the individual households of Israel as they observed Passover together. In Judges 2, after perhaps the most faithful generation in Israel's history passes away, the generation that conquered the promised land under Joshua, the very next generation Israel of Israel rises up and they immediately fall into idolatry. And if you were to go and read Judges 2, what you'd find is that the author of Judges blames this fall into idolatry on the fact that the first generation in the land failed to remind the second generation of all of God's works. They did not teach them as the torch is passed from David to Solomon in, in 1 Kings 2, David participates in this process by, by pleading with Solomon to keep the commands of God. And of course, Solomon failed to follow David's counsel specifically by multiplying for himself many foreign wives, which God explicitly prohibited Israel and its kings from doing because of the spiritual ramifications of what would occur when foreign wives were entrusted with the spiritual instruction of Israel's children. Solomon ignored that command. And the rest, as they say, is history. 
The theme continues in the New Testament as well. Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the primary vehicle that God has put in place for the transmission of truth from one generation to the next. It isn't the government or even the church. It's the family. Now, that's not to say that other people don't play any role whatsoever. They do. But scripturally, family serves as the primary vehicle for generational instruction. Truth passes from one generation to the next as parents instruct children in the truth. Every single generation that arises, that comes into this world, they come into it ignorant of the workings of the world. And there are two ways that they're able to learn the truth. Either they will learn it through the hard and slow process of experience, or parents can pass on that knowledge and wisdom that, 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 that they gain through experience and give it to the next generation, thus allowing the next generation to start with the cumulative knowledge of several generations. It's the equivalent between starting out in life flat broke or being born into a wealthy family that has slowly and steadily accumulated wealth over time. Such is wisdom. And just like that, it takes one foolish, selfish child to squander the generations of wealth that have been accumulated and leave absolutely nothing for their own children if they do not instruct them. It takes only one generation to fail to educate their children in truth in order for generations of wisdom to be lost. This is especially true of spiritual knowledge. Family serves as God's means of passing spiritual truth from one generation to the next. Every child is born into this world with minds darkened to the knowledge of God. And while it is certainly possible for a variety of people to speak into that child's life and bring them to the knowledge of truth, it's their own parents whom God has given to them for their care who will be the greatest source of spiritual influence in their lives. In fact, let me... Let me show you how this works. I just want to conduct a little informal experiment here, a little poll. By a show of hands, and just wait a second, don't show your hands just yet, wait till I explain all this. So by a show of hands, how many of you here today grew up in a Christian home? And by that I don't mean how many of you have regenerate parents, because I know that sometimes is a different type of question. I simply mean how many of you became first acquainted with the Bible because your parents started taking to you to church when you were a kid. How many of you grew up with at least one of your parents taking you to church? Can you raise hands? You guys see that? Let me put them down now. That's how it tends to work. Most people who come to know Christ grew up in a Christian home. The family it is possibly the most underrated evangelistic vehicle out there today. And by the way, take note of that stay-at-home moms. Listen, folks, do not look down your nose at stay-at-home moms who are faithful to apply themselves to the instruction of their children. When you see a stay-at-home mom, you're looking at probably the most effective type of missionary we have in the church. Make no mistake, heaven is going to be filled with the fruit of their patient and diligent instruction. They probably play one of the most important roles in the entire church because they're the ones filling the pews for the next generation. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying fathers shouldn't or don't play a role in that. They should. I'm just saying, practically speaking, moms wield a ton of influence, which is, once again, why God said to Israel, and I'll quote Deuteronomy 7.4, don't marry foreign wives. He says, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Point being, family plays a huge role in what will take place spiritually in the next generation. And that's all according to design. God has designed the family as the primary means of passing spiritual truth from, to the next generation of children so that they can be saved from their spiritual darkness and come to know God. Just like Israel went from being a, a faithful nation of, of worshipers under Joshua to a nation of idolaters in a single generation because of the older generation's failure to teach their children, the ways of Yahweh. So also the families of this church can go from a collection of people who love and worship God to a collection of idolaters within a single generation if we are not faithful to teach our own children. In other words, while in one sense love for family is an expression of love for God because it reflects the character of God, 
Love for family also serves as an expression of love for God because he, it expands his kingdom horizontally. Family serves as a form of generational evangelism. Just as evangelism is an expression of worship, right? Because it creates new worshipers of God. So also family creates worshipers of God as couples have children and raise them in the instruction of the Lord. This means that if Cornerstone wants to successfully worship God, then we must be intentional in our love for our families. This will include not only becoming better husbands and wives, but also becoming better parents. If you think about it, there are many, many implications that come from this understanding of the role of family in creation. Again, you go back to the concept of divorce again, and I think you see why, again, why the Scripture condemns it so strongly. It's not just because divorce mars the image of God and man. It's also because family serves as the primary means of spiritual instruction from one generation to the next. You rend that fabric in two, and it's quite often the children who are left naked. Think about it. How many kids are out there today who are growing up with little guidance from their parents because an unbiblical divorce left one parent to care for their children while also working long hours away from home? And even when there are single parents who are able to be involved, and there are many who do this at tremendous sacrifice to themselves, can it still replace what God has designed through a marriage? The image of God is reflected not only in us individually, but also when a man and woman sacrificially love one another and complement one another in marriage. How many children today don't get the opportunity to see this because of an unbiblical divorce? The line is, is breaking. If it's not already been broken, future generations are going to grow up ignorant of what a marriage should really look like because present generations are failing in this area. A biblical understanding of family shows us why God condemns rebellious children so strongly. I mean, do you realize that under the Mosaic law, a child was to be put to death for striking their parents? What's with that, right? I mean, it's got some kind of monster. That's what we tend to think. That seems extreme. No, he's not a monster. God just understands with incredible clarity, with much greater clarity than you or I tend to understand it, He understands the harm rebellion causes. He understands even better than you and I that when a child chooses to rebel against their parents, they are choosing ignorance and, and the pain of sin that comes with ignorance. And He understands how quickly this mindset can spread to other children who are foolish enough to think that their parents don't know, don't care, and that they'd be better off under their own just going their own way. And so in love, God told Israel to deal with the rebellious child quickly for the preservation of the rest of that generation. And just to be clear, I'm not saying we should do that today, right? <laughs> Far from it. If anything, I, I think what we're talking about shows us how, as regenerate people, we should act towards one another with compassion and grace. But what I am saying is that this understanding of family helps us understand these things. It helps us see that rebellion, for example, is a serious issue that we must treat seriously as parents. Isn't this interesting? All, all the things that this concept of family teaches us about Scripture, once we understand its theological basis, and I know that up to this point I focus on all the things that this concept teaches us about what we shouldn't do, but it also teaches us, you know, that's not all it teaches. It, it teaches us a, a, about the things that we should do as a family as well. It shows us, for instance, that husbands and it should be should be active, loving leaders in their homes. It shows us that wives should joyfully follow their husbands. It shows us that children should love and respect their parents, and in return, that parents should actively and tenderly love their children. And again, what all of this shows us, if nothing else, is that when there are breakdowns. In these relationships, it's filled with love and, and, and the grace that seeks to restore relationships rather than push people away. I mean, given all that family represents, isn't it, is it really any surprise that, that this is under such severe attack in our culture? I mean, when you compare what the Bible has to say about family with what our society says about family, I think it's evident that there is perhaps no aspect of our society, perhaps not the church, and perhaps not in the church, but no aspect of society under greater attack right now than the matter of family. And listen, guys, Satan is no fool. In fact, this may sound strange to hear from the lips of a pastor, but Satan is actually an incredibly brilliant theologian. He knows more about God than either you or me, and he, re he rejects what he knows. 
But he knows a lot. And he uses what he knows about God to attack God and his kingdom. I tend to think this is what we see going on with the concept of family. The family is under full assault in our culture because as, as a result of the, the theology, you know, the theology we're talking about here today, Satan has the same objectives that we do. And it, but, but the point is he wants to destroy the family for these reasons, not build it up. Satan knows if he can successfully take down the family, then not only does he defame the image of God, but he can send our society back into the spiritual dark ages. I point this out because as a church, if if we choose to be faithful in worshiping God and our love for our family, then we're going to face some rough waters ahead. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. And in 1 John 5.19, it says that the whole world lies in his power. Well, it would appear... That what, the, that what this power, with this power, Satan is deceiving the culture around us by telling everyone that the better thing, even the most loving thing, to do in familial relationships is the exact opposite of what the Bible says to do. The result is a popular concept of family that's completely backwards from what the Bible says about it. So if we as a church are going to worship God and worship Him rightly in this area, we're going to need to be willing and able to fight against the current of our culture of our, of our culture in our own families as we try to lead them. Next week we move on to the second objective in our expression of love for others, love for the church. We could easily say that love for family is the most basic expression of love that we're called to. After all, it's the most basic and really even the easiest form of relationship that God has given to us. It's easy, right, to love our family. God calls us to excel there first. In this sense, I I do want to make this clear. In this sense, love for family is not the fulfillment of love for your neighbor. It's actually the most bare minimum expression of love for your neighbor that you can find. And that shouldn't be missed. The world will watch us here first because it's easy to love our families. Even unbelievers can love their families. This is really not a special expression of love, a special expression of love. It's actually the most basic, which is why it's so crucial we excel here first. It all starts here. Well, next week, we'll discuss the idea of loving the church. And we'll see that if family is the most basic relationship that we're called to, I think it's fair to say that the church is the highest. This means if we're going to succeed in worshiping God, then we must not only love our family, we must also love the church. Let's pray.